0: Our scripture reading is taken from Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. guys will turn this mic up just a little bit i can relax my voice and we'll make it through the day used to listen every day at lunch to paul harvey's broadcast 15 minutes of broadcast i called it ddocs that was an acronym that stood for daily dose of common sense and if i couldn't find paul harvey on the radio i didn't have lunch but uh he had a segment toward the end of each day's program that was called for what it's worth department. And he would always tell some kind of interesting anecdote or something that uh, a listener had sent in to him. And this this occasion, there was a man who said he sent in he, he sent in a sign that had a rather enigmatic message. He said he was driving through his neighborhood on his way home from work one day, and he saw a neighbor who had erected a sign in their front lawn, and the sign said, Basically, three things. Number one, free to give away. Free, again, repeated free, Rottweiler. Number two, will eat anything. Number three, loves children. (laughs) That's a mixed signal if I've ever heard one. You do not have to have a degree in communication to know that in order for effective communication to take place, there must be agreement on the definition of terms. That's why an effective debater usually begins his first speech, at least of the debate, by specifying what the words mean in the proposition. And that is so that not only the debaters but everyone who is there will know exactly what issues are being discussed. Uh, Let me give you a page very quickly and then we'll build on that in our lesson this morning. A page off of, I guess, Fundamental Speech 101 that tells us that if the encoder of a message, that's the speaker, is using a word with one meaning in mind and the decoder of that same message, that's the hearer, defines that word differently, then obviously communication is not only going to be hampered, it will be absolutely impossible. So the point being, before we can understand each other, we have to have the same premise, the same mental framework. We have to work with the same definition of terms, or else there will always be some misunderstanding in that that communication process. Otherwise, nothing at all will make sense. Christians and non-Christians, and this is the premise of of this morning's lesson, Christians and non-Christians often fail to understand each other because they're operating with radically different frames of reference. And that's what I want us to think about for a few minutes together. If you've looked at the banners on the wall you know that our theme for 2020 is is having 2020 vision. And of course we're talking about that from a spiritual dimension standpoint. We, We want to sharpen our vision this year and I think it all begins with this foundational understanding of what is our worldview. How do we see the world? What is it that that we define as most important in life, how do we define success in life, all of that has to do with what kind of worldview we have. And so that's what we often call our frames of reference. We just call them worldviews. Now, there's no arguing the point that people behave differently. I mean, you you don't even have to look outside this building. You can look at our city. We can look at our state, our nation, our world, and you know that there is a wide gamut of how people behave differently. Sometimes the behavior is inconsequential, and sometimes that behavior is absolutely important. I mean, earth-shakingly important. And sometimes our behavior is moral. I think we talked about that a few weeks ago. Sometimes behavior is moral. Sometimes it is clearly immoral. And sometimes it is amoral. That is, it has no moral dimension whatsoever. What color tie I decided to wear this morning, that's an amoral decision. It's not right or wrong in a moral sense, although I've got some ties that might be considered to be wrong to wear in public, but that's another matter. But how we decide what fits into those Three categories of moral, amoral, and immoral are to be determined by the particular the person and his, his or her particular frame of reference. And we decide, for example, what to have for breakfast, uh, or a rather inconsequential decision. But on the same day, we decide also whether or not we will be faithful to our husband or wife, which is a decision, obviously, of great weight. Based on our spiritual frame of reference, then, we're going to also decide whether to even have a husband or wife. Or whether we'll just cohabit without the ceremony, without the paperwork involved in getting married. Because perhaps our, our worldview is that we have decided that marriage is just a social convention, a social construct, as opposed to being the plan and the design of God. So whether you decide to actually have a marriage ceremony or not depends upon your worldview. So on the same day we decide what color socks to wear, we also decide whether or not we're going to serve God. All of those important and unimportant decisions have to do with our perspective on life, and I think most of you came in here this morning already knowing all of that. But the point is, our behavior for good or bad is based on something. Why do we behave the way we do? Well, the shorter answer is our our behavior is based on our values, and our values are in turn based on our worldview. Behaviors differ from one person to another because we have different and often widely different values. One person, for example, places a high value on having a new sports car, so his behavior is different than one who doesn't. We place values, the values that we put on on money and, and fame and God and family, physical appearance, health, education, all of those things determine our behavior. I don't think any of us would disagree that the behavior of the woman that the world knew of as Mother Teresa was vastly different than the behavior of the man the world knew of as Charles Manson. Their behavior was at both ends of the the moral spectrum. Why was that? Because they had vastly different worldviews. How they viewed the world was completely different. And guess what? Everybody who ever lived from that point forward or from that point backward, has a worldview of some kind or the other. In light of what Jesus said in our text in Matthew 6, 24, we all have to make a decision as to whether we're going to serve God or we're going to serve money that is material things, this world's goods and possessions. So when we're thinking about, our, about values, we just have to take it a step further back and we have to ask why then do we have the values that we have? And succinctly stated, our values are based on our worldview and I think that's basic enough to be axiomatic. How we view the world determines how we view life and our place in life and how we ought to behave for the brief amount of time that we, that we take up space and breathe air on this planet. And in formulating our worldview, we have to address and answer questions like, Is there a God? And if there is a God, did he create everything that we are and everything that we see? What is this world? Where did it come from? See, those fundamental questions have to be asked and answered in light of our worldview. What's the nature of man? Does God, in fact, exist? And is he responsible for everything that we see? and everything that that we are within us? Or or did this physical universe result from, from a big bang that brought everything that we know and see into existence from a tiny particle of matter smaller than the head of a pen? That is, is our worldview going to be strictly natural, or is it going to include the supernatural? Every one of us has to decide, if at least on a subconscious level. In this discussion, we also have to ask ourselves questions like, What is life for? And when I say that, you may be thinking immediately of people that you know of who apparently have not yet decided what the answer to that question is, at least in their circumstances, and you would be exactly right. There are people who sadly, tragically go through their entire lives maybe never even asking themselves that question, just kind of floating through life never really accomplishing much, never really adding to the the lives of of those around them by virtue of their good influence because they have not yet answered that question satisfactorily, and that is, what is life for? Are are we put here for a reason? If so, then who is the one who gives us that reason? All of these things are questions that we must ask ourselves and answer to God's satisfaction as well as our own. Said another way we have to address the three fundamental questions of life where did I come from what am I doing here and where am I going and that last question may be the most theologically and emotionally loaded question of all three of them because it has to do with our perspective how we how we view eternity or whether we even believe there is such a thing as eternity is this life all that there is or am I like my dog rover when I'm dead I'm dead all over there are a lot of people, more people today perhaps than ever before, who really believe that. There is no eternity. There is no afterlife. When you're dead, you're dead all over there. There's no more consciousness. There is no such thing as a soul. Or it is there? The other side, is there a part of every human being that we refer to as a soul that will live on somewhere in eternity? So in that sense, every everyone who has ever walked this planet is for something. By that, I mean every person has an intended function or purpose. And that function or purpose is based, foursquare, on how he or she views the world. And so what is a human being for? What are you for, if I may be allowed to get more personal? You see, when you can answer those questions, then you will know what your worldview is, which determines your values, which in turn determines your behavior. Now basically there are two worldviews. Let me mention those, discuss them briefly, then we're through. And there are only two worldviews in our culture, in our world, and you have bought into one or the other because everyone has. Jesus stated that fundamental truth in the greatest sermon that was ever preached, known as the Sermon on the Mount. We use that as our text this morning, Matthew six, twenty four. Look at it or at least think about it again with me. No man can serve two masters. You'll either hate the one, love the other, cling to the one, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, our Lord said. To state that, in more modern terms, there is the non-Christian worldview and there's the Christian worldview. And I don't have to tell you, they are vastly different. And if we're going to improve our vision for the year 2020, we simply must decide on a worldview worldview. And we regulate our lives. We inform every decision based upon what that worldview is. So in turn, first of all, there's the non-Christian worldview, also known by another, I'm kind of playing a little loose with the definition of terms here, but it also can be known as naturalism or humanism and sometimes even as secularism. But for the non-Christian, the purpose of life basically is to find pleasure. So if I am a non-Christian, then I'm going to marshal all of my time, energy, and resources to that end. I want to experience as much pleasure as I can while I'm alive. And at the basis of each decision the non-Christian makes are these questions. What would I like best and what would I prefer? And that's about as deep as the criteria goes in my decision-making process. What would I like best? What would I prefer in any given situation? And the more pleasure that the, that the non Christian finds, the more displeasure or pain that he avoids, the more successful he deems his life to be. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that Ernest, Ernest Hemingway is the one who defined moral as what a person feels good after. Think about the implications of that. Boy, Every serial killer in the world would like to hear that, wouldn't he? Because they feel immensely good after they have done their awful deed. The person who does not factor God or eternity into his or her worldview is concerned only with success. And I mean success as self-defined. However they choose to define success with no consideration of success after this life for the very simple reason, they don't believe that there is an afterlife this is all there is so quite naturally no pun intended quite naturally all of his or her plans will end at the grave the humanist is just it's just living his life consistent with his worldview. he wants to be successful but he wants to be successful so that maybe he'll achieve the acclaim of others or maybe again to be financially successful enough to be comfortable or maybe his aspirations are higher than that he wants to be A little more than comfortable. He wants people to look at him and admire him and envy him. And and, and that's the major thing that drives him through life. And and that's because when you use the monetary yardstick to measure the success or the failure of your life, it should be obvious that, that the more money that you have and the more things that you possess, the more successful you are. That's the world viewpoint. But that's because he's using a completely different yardstick than the Christian is in measuring his, his worth and value and the meaning of his life. Now, we've seen this dichotomy down through history. I talked about this a few weeks ago, I know, and I'm going to use an illustration that I used then, but it fits here, so hang with me, and we're going to look at it through a little bit different window of illustration. The secular world can be seen by looking at the Roman arena where the Christians were on the arena floor being fed to the lions, and that was being done in order to entertain the masses. Now, you talk about cold-hearted and bloodthirsty. That, that crowd was cold-hearted and bloodthirsty. But to entertain the masses, the Christians were being thrown to the lions. Now, I think it goes without saying that the worldview of the person who was sitting in a seat in the arena, watching that take place, and cheering on the lions, was completely different, With a, a completely different worldview than the person who was down on the arena floor serving as a lunchable for a lion. You know what I'm talking about. And I guarantee you, the person who's sitting in the seat in that arena does not understand, cannot begin to fathom how that that person being torn apart by a lion because of his or her faith in Jesus, how they could die with a prayer of thanksgiving on their lips for the honor of dying for the cause of Christ. They just did not understand that. And you could explain it to him a thousand different ways, and he would never get it. But the persons who were dying now stay with me now. the persons who were dying, the Christians on the arena floor, at least to some degree, did understand how that the persons responsible for their deaths could do such a thing, and here's why. that's because they once sat where they sat. They once believed what they believed. They once had the values that they had. But their worldview, their spiritual vision, radically changed when they came to know Jesus. There was a paradigm shift of monumental importance. All of a sudden, their worldview had taken a 180-degree turn. In light of that, let me ask you this question. and I don't know that it has an answer, but I I pondered it as I was working on this lesson. I was rereading Acts chapter 9 and how Saul of Tarsus came to know Jesus on the Damascus Road. And you know that when... uh, when he was stricken blind there on that road for three days in his blindness the bible says that he he fasted and he prayed i wonder was that blindness symbolic that is when his sight was restored then he was able to see again but it also coincides with his ability to see clearly spiritually see what i'm going with that so not only does he have his physical eyesight restored, all of a sudden, Saul saw things in a completely different way. He now saw things clearly because of his change of worldview. Suddenly, people who, who came to know Christ were, were transformed. And, and again, in light of Romans 12, verse 2, they were transformed beginning between the years. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and they realized that what they used to think was important wasn't, and what they used to think was not important really was. And now they're having to exchange their old values in on brand new values that are completely different. By the way, but not incidentally, that same transformation continues today, in 2020. All over the world when people are introduced to Jesus Christ and they make the conscious decision to follow him and serve him. But unless or until that happens, the Romans, again back to the arena illustration, the Romans who believed that the primary purpose of life was pleasure simply could not understand how that those stupid Christians, why they would willingly go to their deaths before they would forsake their allegiance to this Jesus person. They just did not understand that. And all those Christians had to do to be free was just to say Caesar is Lord. But watch this carefully. They would not do it. And to the Romans, that just did not make any sense at all. Because as some would still argue today, after all, it's just words. Second, consider the Christian worldview for just a moment and obviously I'm simplifying and boiling things down the Christian enjoys pleasure just like anybody else I mean we're Christians but we're not weird no matter what the worldview may say and just like anybody else we don't like experiencing displeasure that is we don't like experiencing pain but that's not what he's for That is not the essence of his or her life. That's not the purpose of his life, the the experiencing of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That alone does not define him or her. So for the Christian, the ultimate purpose of life, listen carefully, please. The ultimate purpose of life for the child of God is to bring glory to God, so he marshals his time, energy, and resources to that end. Everything he or she does as a child of God they're doing that within the framework of, how can I bring glory to God? How can I cause others to honor God and come to see him as I see him, hopefully with twenty twenty spiritual vision? For the Christian, the ultimate purpose then is to do exactly that. The basis of each decision the Christian makes are fundamental questions like, what would bring more honor to God? And what would be God's will? What would God have me to do in any given situation in life? Now, the child of God is very much aware of Ecclesiastes 12, 13. That's where Solomon, at the end of what I call the laboratory of life, he tried everything there was trying to find meaning, purpose, and happiness. And down at the very end, next to the last verse, verse 13, he says, "...now all has been heard. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter." Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. At the original, the word duty does not appear. That just means this is the whole. This is the entirety of what man's existence is all about. What, Solomon? To fear God and to keep his commandments. And the child of God is also fond of Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by him. One thing you cannot keep a christian from doing is glorifying and honoring god because that's that's his nature that's who he is that's what he's for and he has grown spiritually to where he comes to fully understand that torture him if you will kill him if you must but he will only glorify god in his persecution and in his death just like those early christians did and and the world didn't get it then they don't get it now Because they don't understand our worldview. We need to also point out before we end this morning that there continues to be a clash between these two worldviews. There always has been, and I really believe there always will be. Jesus himself said the world would not get it. That is, they would not understand the Christian worldview. Listen to John 1, verses 4 and 5. Feel free to turn there and follow along if you'd like. John writes this, in him, that is Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. Now, I really want you to listen to the last phrase and the darkness did not comprehend it. You think the world in the first century got, that is, understood the Christian worldview? Absolutely not. Did they understand Jesus and why he came, what he came to? Absolutely not. Not only do they not understand us, there's always been a friction, a conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And I'm convinced there always will be. Listen to, to John chapter 3 verse 19 beginning. And you appreciate, I think, immediately that that comes just a few verses after the golden text of the Bible. God so loved the world. Why did he do that? Listen to verses 19 through 21. And this is the condemnation. That, that, that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So someone in the world who's practicing the acts of darkness, who's practicing that kind of lifestyle, does not want to come anywhere around Jesus or anyone who follows Jesus because they are a source of spiritual light. Their deeds will be exposed and they don't need that kind of publicity. And if you think that there will ever be a time when the secular worldview and the Christian worldview will be at peace with one another, you you need to think again. Peter told those persecuted oppressed Christians of the early church that he wrote to with respect to this, they, and they there means the world, they think it's strange that you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. They don't understand why you don't go to the parties that you used to go to with them. They don't understand why you're living life to the excess, why you're not still living the immoral kind of life that you lived before you became a Christian. And notice then this next statement, speaking evil of you. I think the ESV says, and they malign you. That is, Peter wanted them to know that if they're not just going to leave you alone to let you live your life in peace and say, we agree to disagree. You live your life the way you want to, and I'll do the same. No, he said, they'll speak evil of you. They'll try to make life hard for you. Now, I'm not trying to depress you this morning, but I just want you to know that that's what's at stake. That's what's always been at stake. Ever since the church was formed on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and 2,000 years later, nothing has really changed. I can't say that I read from one side to the other the Montgomery Advertiser this morning, but I did take a look at it and looked at what I consider to be the important parts of that paper. And I can guarantee you from just what I read in the paper this morning right here in our city There is still a conflict between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There's still a war going on, folks. If you don't think there's a battle going on in our city that's fought on a spiritual arena, then you need to reread these verses and think about them more closely. So I'm just asking us and telling us this morning that everybody has to make a choice. I've used this quote a number of times, but hang on, here it comes. Everybody has heard the Yogi Berra statement about... Whenever I come to a fork in the road, I always take it. And, and that's, thank you, both of you. And, and, and that is so hysterically funny because it's so nonsensical. Uh, the, sens- the sensical mind understands that when you come to a fork in the road, you don't just take it, you have to make a decision. There's a choice that has to be made. You have to decide which of those two paths that constitute the fork that you're going to take. And when Jesus said no man can serve two masters, he was telling us basically the same thing. He was telling every person who will ever walk on this planet that we too must make a decision as to who or what will be our master. Sometimes the behavior of the world and the behavior of the Christian are compatible. They don't always clash. But even then they spring from two entirely different sources And they will often be at odds with one another. Let me give you a quick example. I can enjoy sports or entertainment as much as a person out in the world. But perhaps for an entirely different set of reasons. The Christian has settled the basic question of who he is and whose he is. His or her vision is twenty twenty. when it comes to these eternal issues that we've been talking about this morning. He does right simply because it's right. Because it's the will of God and for no other reason whether it's fun or pleasant has very little to do with his decision making process and if God chooses to bless you with with health and prosperity for your faithful and committed life then wonderful and and we will thank God and we will praise him for that but if he chooses that you're to be thrown to the lions because of your faith and committed life that's fine too we'll just praise God anyway join me as we seek to achieve better spiritual vision in this new year and let's begin this morning with a confident blessed assurance that there is a God in heaven that he sent his son to die for lost humanity to die in our place so that we did not have to die because of our mistakes because of our sins That there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun as surely as the sun came up this morning. If we can have those bedrock convictions in our lives, then we can begin to formulate and, and cultivate a worldview that will not only be pleasing to God, but that will allow us someday to see His face... And to live with him in eternity in a place that the Bible calls heaven. And then we'll be able to make every other decision informed and directed by those fundamental spiritual realities. Including the decision to become and live as a child of God starting right now. And if you haven't made that decision, we are in a church building. We are in a worship context because we, many of us at least, have already made that decision. And if you would like to become a child of God this morning... If you need to change your worldview and say, I want to see things through God's eyes, the way God would have me to see them, and to live my life in a way that would please him, then we hope you'll come while we stand and while we sing. My only hope you, Jesus. will only hope you. From early in the morning till late at night. My only hope is you. My only peace is you. Jesus, my only peace is you. From early in the morning till late at night, my only peace is you. My only joy